and take your Bibles and turn to Isaiah chapter 2. We'll be looking at here in just a minute together. Certainly appreciate Pastor Steve's addressing of uh, some theological themes in the book of Isaiah. Uh, it's my task uh, to share Isaiah's contribution to our understanding of the end times. Uh, so what does Isaiah have to say about how things are going to wrap up? Uh, you'll hear me use the word eschatological or eschatology or any number of of words like that, and as I say them, all I want you to think about is the very end, when God wraps everything up. So we're going to be looking together the next uh, four night, or four weeks together. I think that we get a little break in there because of the church picnic, uh, but we'll be looking at Isaiah's contribution to our understanding of the end times. Now, as we think about the next four weeks together in the book of Isaiah, I want to share just some introductory comments to keep in mind, three of them. Okay? Uh, the first one is this. Surprisingly, Isaiah and the school of the prophets were not primarily predictors of the future. They were not primarily predictors of the future. Primarily, they declared to people of their own time their spiritual need in light of the Mosaic Law. The second thing I want us to keep in mind is this, is that the law, the Mosaic Law, did not prescribe the existence of the prophets or the prophetic office like it did the priests. The priests, now you think of Moses and Aaron and Eli and Hophni and Phinehas and uh, the priests had their eye to the ceremonial law. They assured that God was approached on his terms. Prophets were not constrained by the ceremonial law. Rather, they had their eye, believe it or not, to the land. To the land and its condition. The land was a gift from God. The land would either enhance their lives and make it more simple, or it would frustrate their lives, making it very difficult. The land and its condition was a telltale sign for the prophet as to the practical obedience of the nation. So that's the second thing to keep in mind. And then the third thing I want you to keep in mind is this, is that the theme of Isaiah is like the other writing prophets. Now, that designation, writing prophets, is important. We never want to think that the prophets, the only prophets that existed were the ones that we have in our Bible as having written a book, the major and the minor prophets. There were schools of prophets. There were lots of prophets. Uh, and many of them, the majority of them, are unnamed, and we know a little about. Um, but there were a lot of them. But Isaiah is like the other writing prophets. 
in terms of his theme. It's a finely woven tapestry of hope and judgment. This theme is developed by a verbal formula you'll often run into in really many of the writing prophets, Isaiah included. That verbal formula sounds something like this. The day of the Lord, or in that day, or on that day. These words signal for us a time yet future, not only to the nation of Israel, but even the church today. That day has times of severe judgment and times of unprecedented blessing. So you'll read both events occurring in that day. So there seems to be two phases of that time period called the day of the Lord. The prophet teaches, and this is very important, that for God, hope and judgment are symbiotically dependent. That's a big word. Okay. Um, symbiosis, that's where two otherwise unrelated things are, are together because they depend on each other. You know, it's like you watch the shark shows, there's always that little sucker fish on the shark sucking off all the bacteria, and he's thankful that the shark doesn't eat him. So they, they kind of got a, you know, the sort of you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back approach. And that's true of, of hope and judgment. Well, we don't want to think of hope and judgment as sort of some kind of opposites, at least from the prophetic viewpoint. Okay? Are you with me? All righty. We got all those three things. All right. So with those first words firmly in our mind, two things tonight that Isaiah in chapter 2 teaches us about the end times. The first thing Isaiah teaches us is that the end far from being apocalyptic. Let me say that again. The end, far from being apocalyptic. Who believes the end is apocalyptic? Hollywood. <laughs> Makes for great movies. Yeah, everything's going to blow up. Sun's going to fall on the earth. So from the prophetic perspective... It's far from being apocalyptic. Rather, here's point number one. It is the universal realization of hope. It's the universal realization of hope. It's the farthest thing from apocalyptic. It's the universal realization of hope. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. The word which Isaiah the son of Amaz saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now it will come about that in the last days, sort of our little verbal formula there, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it and many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of, our, of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem and he will judge between the nation and will render decisions for many peoples. And in that famous verse here, and they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. 
Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. The first thing we want to note about this universal hope that the end times is all about is the content of the hope that Isaiah presents is not something that's alien to human experience. It's something very familiar to this present world. It arises, the longing or the hope of it, arises out of the complications in our human experience brought about by sin and moral corruption. The future age will be filled with all of the emotions that are opposite to the ones our old sin nature binds us to. Rather than the feelings of anxiety, fear, guilt, all, my friends, will know peace, faith, joy, justice, and intimacy with God. Qualities that are familiar, but sadly inconsistent, and at times absent in this world today. Another noteworthy thing about this hope is that it is first and foremost a spiritual hope. It is transformative of the affections of mankind. This is the level from which true worship proceeds. It helps us understand Jesus' first advent, that he had to come to die for what? The sins of the world. It helps us to understand why Jesus came preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Because the primary, the first and primary requirement to get into the kingdom is you must be spiritually transformed. In the words of Jesus to Nicodemus, you must be what? Born again. again. There's no born again, there's no kingdom for you. So this hope is first and foremost a spiritual transformative reality going all the way to including our affections. Third thing we note about this hope is that Jerusalem and the nation of Israel are the center for this hope. In verse 2 we read the mountain of the house of the Lord, a reference to Jerusalem. Verse number 3, again that phrase is used. And in the second half of that verse, number 3, we see house of the God of Jacob. The end times, or eschatology, holds to the primacy of Israel. We err, however, if we stop at the primacy of Israel, because in fact, our fourth thing to note, the nations will be the benefactors of the realization of this hope. Verse 2, did you catch it? I tried to read it in a way that you might catch it. It says there, all the nations will stream into Jerusalem. Verse 3, many peoples will come and say, verse 4, judgment will be made between the nations. The benefit is clearly first and foremost a spiritual transformative benefit that will include everyone. <clears throat> it's universal. It's everybody. <clears throat> In verses 3 and 4, we note particularly again what specifically is, is transformed. Well, we see there uh, uh, these words that he may teach us concerning his ways. 
All the nations have their affections transformed. So now they want to go and sit at Jesus' feet and be taught his ways. That's amazing. That takes some real transformation. And that's what's going to be their longing. We read uh, the desire of the nations that we may walk in his paths. This, this idea in Hebrew has to say, uh, uh, means that they will like, listen to this, the moral standards by which King Jesus seeks to guide. You know, I know we have a difficult time with standards. <laughs> but no, in that day, nobody will have any problem with Jesus' standards at all. Or the word itself. It'll be a beloved word. They'll love Jesus' standards. The idea here of verse number four, that they will uh, turn hammer uh, uh, and their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. The breaking of weapons and the fashioning agricultural in implements indicate a transition of, of a disposition of fear and stress uh, to one of peace and security. So the realized hope is first and foremost a spiritual transformation of the affections of all nations. It starts on the inside of us and of them. But not only does Isaiah teach us that the realization of hope will be the universal experience in the end time, not apocalypse, he also teaches us that God's judgment is the universal method used to realize that hope. Let me say that again. God's judgment is the universal method used to realize that hope. I say universal because judgment is both on the house of Jacob. You see that in verse 5. Come house of Jacob, verse 6, you have abandoned, our, our God has abandoned you. And then we read in verse number 12, who else is included? Against who? Everyone else. So we have hope being universal. We have judgment as the universal method of God to realize this hope. But what about judgment and anger from God? Isn't that just more of the same stuff that got us to where we are today? Anger, judgment, don't judge me. The answer is an emphatic no. There is a profound difference. God's judging is always and only a reaction to sin. God never overreacts. And he can control his anger. In fact, the book of Isaiah teaches us he delays it as long as possible. Listen to these verses. Isaiah 42, 14. I have kept silent for a long time. I have kept still and restrained myself. Now like a woman in labor, I will groan. And I will gasp and pant. Isaiah 48, 9. For the sake of my name, I delay my wrath. And for my praise, I restrain it for you in order not to cut you off 
Isaiah 64, 12. Will you restrain yourself with these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us beyond measure? So he delays it as long as possible. His judgment and anger is temporal, but his kindness is everlasting. Listen to Isaiah 54, 7. For a brief moment, I forsook you, but with great compassion, I will gather you. I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness, loving kindness, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. God's judgment and anger are deterrents to the moral corruption and the predatory nature of sinful people, wicked people, people like you and me when we were outside of Christ. God's violence in response to the violence sin produces is in fact counter-violence. God's judgment is a principle stabilizer and equalizer that undermines the destabilizing influence of sin and the accumulation of evil and moral corruption in the world. One author put it this way. The reality is that every day of God's patience in a world of violence means more violence. You know, this is good news for those who are afflicted. In Isaiah, we can say this, God has a monopoly on the final judgment and its required violence. It is ours to trust that the final violence is a holy violence. It is fair and measured. The monopoly, he the monopoly he has on final violence over evil is the necessary precondition for our ability to love our enemy with the hope of seeing them come to Jesus. It makes sense of Romans 5 and James 1 where we're instructed to glory in trials and to count them joy. Why? Because they are not the final word. Amen. That's why. It also aids in our understanding of how, in fact, God manages sin and evil in this world, or why he, is, he allows it. It will not have the final word. Like hope, the focus of judgment is first on the house of Jacob, the community of faith. It's noteworthy in verse number 5, back to Isaiah chapter 2, in verse number 5. Come thou house of Jacob that the failure of the house of Jacob was in their walk. It was in the practical choices of daily living. Daily choices are informed by our affections, what we like and what we don't like. By an individual's likes and dislikes, choices are made. What informed the house of Jacob's affections? And... It is here that we find the very crux of the issue in verses 6 through 7. What was their, what informed their affections? Well, they were filled with influences from the east. That's a dramatic pause. 
in contrast to their affections, what they like and dislike, being trained to what God delights in, they were trained by what men from the East delighted in. You want to write down some verses, Isaiah 65, 12 and 66, 4, where the real reason why God sends the nation of Israel or the nation of Judah into captivity is because they failed to delight in what the Lord delighted in. They had all the law down. They had all the sacrifices down. You know. We see here that they sought out soothsayers as a result. Due to the influences of the men from the east, they sought out soothsayers. Can I say this? God has delights when it comes to discovering his will, but mark it down, soothsayers are not one of them. They're business practices, men. We're informed by men from the east. Can I say this? God delights in business dealings. But the people of the east do not author what he delights in when he wants you to do business his way. They do not author it. You can read it. It's right there. But the people of the east were influential upon the people of God. They authored the delights and affections of God's people. And as a result, the people, God's people, idolized treasures. They idolized horses and chariots for their strength. And they were, in fact, full of idols, our text tells us, in verses 5 and following. In verses 8 through 9, we read that because Israel's affections were trained by the delights of the men from the east and not from God, the image likeness of God in them was twisted almost beyond recognition. The dignity that God has sown into mankind by giving him his image was reduced and groveled, if I could use that word, to the things that God had commanded them to have dominion over. They were making idols and worshiping the things that God had told them to have dominion over. They were cutting themselves. They were <clears throat> looking like, acting like. They were, if I can use this word, they were pagan. They, their society grew pagan. Not because they didn't know the law, not because they didn't bring their sacrifices, but because in their daily walk, their affections were trained by men from the east. God's going to change that in the very end. That will not happen anymore. It won't. In fact, not only was judgment for the nation of Israel, but also for, in verses 12 through 22, everyone and everything that is lifted up, and particularly in the area of their affections, is where this is sort of realized. Again, the lifting up of everything and everyone is primarily seen in the practical choices of everyday life. What will be the corrective? What is the corrective? What's going to be the counter? Verses 10, 19, and 21. Put it very clearly. <clears throat> it's the terror of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty. That's the counter. That's the counter. Read it. It's there. <clears throat> 
It's used three times as the corrective agent. It stands as the holy counterviolence to the violence wrecked by sin and moral corruption. It will so profoundly, it will be so profoundly displayed in judgment in that day that the affections of men will drastically change. And the full hope of peace, faith, joy, justice, and intimacy with God will be fully realized as it will be freed from the bondage of affections bound by men from the east and their own sin natures and moral corruption. <clears throat> Verse 22, look down there is the conclusion of our message and the fundamental message of Isaiah's prophecy. At a time in the history of Judah when there was still hope, Isaiah says, stop regarding man whose breath of life is only in his nostrils. For why should he be esteemed and not me? And that's what he says, and I don't mean to yell it, but I have a feeling, you know, if you're trying to get terror and majesty, maybe God will be real quiet. That's one way I remember some of my teachers, they showed terror and majesty when they Maybe God will do it that way. Verse 18, idols will completely vanish. Idols are things that dominate the affections of men. Never forget that. Your affections, what are your likes and dislikes? What are they? This rhetorical truth is aimed in laser-like fashion at the affections. God will have not just the declaration of man's lips... but he will also have the very heart of their affections. You know, we live in a day and age where um, there's a lot of declaration of what we call positional truth and very little consequent practical living. We're together for the gospel, and well, we should, perhaps. And those redemptive themes are wonderful. But know this, the Trinity... God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they're together for the glory of God. Amen. And redemption is on the pathway to bringing glory to God, to having your very affections moved. This is the genius of true worship. True worship is not simply redemptive, although that is a critical first part. True worship progressively learns to like what God likes. In that sense, it seeks the glory of God in every nook and cranny of life. Folks, it is the joy of the believer to ask God what it is he likes in every practical area of our lives. <clears throat> Folks, it's a conversation that should never stop in your life. It is like a rich marital relationship that never stops pursuing oneness. This is the goal to which God is bringing all of what he has created. We, the church, enjoy this amazing part of what eternal life is. 2 Peter 1.19 teaches that the church has the prophetic word made more sure. In the church, our affections pursue the perfection of our Lord Jesus. And along the way, we get to achieve the excellence of life that progressively results. It results when God's likes become your likes. You and I must not take our cues from the world system we live in. It is corrupt. We can't ultimately trust our own likes and dislikes either. 
they too may be sourced in our old sin nature. The source of self and the world are far too risky. True worship and excellence is at stake. Our affections must reference an outside source. Who is that source? Well, it's the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. We have the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, faith, temperance. Philippians 1, 9, and 10, we pursue love and knowledge and discernment so that we can approve excellent things. Philippians 4, 8, things that are lovely and of good report, things that are excellent. This is what God wants you to make the core of your affections. What God is excellent from your perspective. And you say, well, there's no verse and chapter that. That's the whole point. When I married my wife and I said, honey, what do you like? There, she doesn't, she, there's no verse and chapter. And, and I discover new things that she likes every single year that I'm living with her. And that's the truth with our walk with God. This is God's interest when we glory in the positional truth of personal excellence. We certainly glory in that. Yes. He says, you are all of that in Christ, so please... Stop regarding man whose breath of life is in his nostrils, for why should he be esteemed? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We stand thanking you for the content of Isaiah chapter 2. It's a very broad beginning to... Um, his message on the end times. But we thank you, God, that the end times is not fundamentally apocalyptic. We rejoice in the truth that it's fundamentally the realization of the hope of all humanity created in God's image. When they're at their best, we long for peace and joy. Uh, we long for these things. And, and we realize, we confess, that uh, there must be counter Violence. There must be counter to the violence of evil and wickedness. And Lord Jesus, you are going to stand as that counter. And uh, you're, you're, you will be exalted. Uh, you will be feared. And there will be a transformative work in the hearts of all of men and all of women. We will delight in being uh, into walking your ways and to embrace your affection. So, Lord, understanding that's where it's all headed. And we as the church have opportunity uh, to, to walk along the way of eternal life. Lord, we have the joy of participating in eternal life. Uh, this is what eternal life is. So, Lord, teach us what you like. Um, help us to be cautious of looking to ourselves. Uh, help us to be cautious of looking to a world system. And help us to daily rejoice in asking you that question. What do you think is beautiful? God, what do, you, what do you think is excellent and right and good and worthy of my pursuit and energy? Lord, give us that disposition here at Grace Church. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Um.